At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 184. And it's in memory of Doug. And I'll get to that here in a second. But uh, before I do that, I just wanted to encourage you to check out some of the other podcasts that are on the Waypoint TV network. Uh, There's a lot of great shows on there. Um, Incredibly popular fly fishing podcasts like Captain's Collective and Anchored with uh, April Vokey. But uh, there's also ones that you probably have never heard of before, including things that aren't fly fishing related. So definitely check those out and uh, let me know what your favorites are. I haven't gotten through all of them yet, but there's great stuff, fly fishing, conventional tackle, hunting, just, you know, homesteading, all sorts of stuff. So uh, I'm happy to be a part of the network. It's definitely increased my audience, which is fantastic. And it also exposed me to some other folks in the outdoor world. So I mentioned earlier that this was in memory. And it's not somebody I was in particularly close with. I knew him well. In fact, we were co-workers for my very first job. My very first job, I uh, worked for a church. I work for a church now. I'm a pastor. But uh, back, oh goodness, in the late 90s, my very first job, before I worked at a fly shop, as I've talked about before in the podcast, I would set up chairs. We were part of a church. The church had grown. They no longer fit inside of the sanctuary. So they utilized the gym that was in the attached Christian school. And every Saturday night, I would go and set up about 300 chairs and four stage pieces and then some um, some risers. And then every Sunday afternoon, I would take it all down, put it away. And Doug was the facility manager. He was the property manager. Uh, and so I knew him in that capacity. But that's not really what you want to hear about. There's not a lot of pertinent information regarding fly fishing or the outdoors uh, based upon my time setting up chairs. Although I will say it was in those moments setting up chairs that I would calculate that X many weeks worth of work would afford me this rod and then this reel and then this line. I remember distinctly as I stacked up chairs with uh, Cabela's catalog rolled up in my back pocket thinking I could get this particular fly rod after three weeks of doing this job. But the reason why I'm mentioning Doug, and then also, this is not just about him. This is about fly fishing mentors. And here's the thing. He wasn't my fly fishing mentor. I don't think I ever went fishing with Doug. But you're going to see why this is important and why you might have somebody like him in your life. 
So I started fly fishing because my friend Alan started fly fishing. My friend Alan started fly fishing because he had been fishing a number of times in his life, including with Doug, but he went to go fishing at his aunt's house, his great aunt, I believe, and the river that flowed by her house was fly fishing only. And so he was captivated by this. And that's what got him into fly fishing and consequently what got me into fly fishing. But so many of his early trout fishing adventures were with Doug. At this point in time, Doug must have been in his late 50s. So he was probably our grandparents' age when we were early teenagers. And Doug would take Alan fishing. Doug would take him up into the Shenandoahs. Uh, Doug would take him to local ponds. And they just had a great relationship, kind of like a, a, a grandfather-grandson relationship. And he exposed him to trout fishing up in the mountains. He exposed him to trout fishing in ponds and, and all other opportunities that are around. Uh, Alan was actually one that reached out to me and let me know that Doug passed away. I'm not, as I mentioned last week, not super active on social media much anymore. And so I, I didn't see the news that way. But Alan let me know. And one of the things that he said was that even though Doug wasn't a fly fisher, he was content to use his conventional gear. He was happy to get Alan up into the mountains, out into the woods to chase fish, and even to chase fish on a fly rod, although that was something that he didn't have much experience with. And so for me, looking back, I can make a very direct tie to where I am today to this gentleman, an older gentleman, who took a teenager fishing, who saw this young man had an interest in the outdoors, saw that he had a desire to do something that kind of ran parallel to what he did, and he took him up on it. And that is an inv invaluable thing to give someone. I've talked a number of times before about what it means to have a fly fishing mentor. I've talked about a number of times before how it is incredibly helpful to invest in a young person. It's not only the fly fishing aspect, it's not only the conservation aspect, it's also the relational aspect of it. And so here's a guy, you know, 45, 50 years, uh, our senior, who had an outsized influence on us. And here we, ha we are, you know, 25 years later, uh, I'm still fly fishing. I, I still enjoy it. It's something I'm passing on to younger people. And I can say that there is a direct tie to an older man who never took me fishing, but took the time to invest the time in another young man. So how do you do this? It might sound simple, but the fact of the matter is, is that it can be the easiest thing in the world, but it's also the hardest thing in the world. Doing something like this, investing in the life of a young person, is a phenomenal opportunity. But there's a work aspect. Now, inevitably, you get to a certain age, and they get to a certain age where they're doing their own thing, and you're doing your own thing, and you're kind of fishing in parallel with each other. And it's not making sure that they're alive every two minutes. It's just checking in every once in a while, particularly now with cell phones and things like that. You probably have a little bit more flexibility. But especially if it's someone else's kid, um, like I know I watch my four boys like a hawk when we're out on the water. But if I have a friend's kid with me that I bring along, there's this extra level of responsibility uh, for making sure that, that they're safe. 
And so, you know, going, it's not just going fishing and bringing someone with you, uh, particularly if it's a young teenager. Uh, it's something that you really want to be very, very deliberate about and make sure that, you know, you understand, they understand, their parents understand that uh, it's, it's, it's a risky endeavor. Being out on the water, being on a boat, it, uh, you know, waiting doing whatever you're, you're planning on doing, there's some inherent risk there. And so that's one of, why one of my uh, greatest recommendations for somebody is to bring along a kid and their parent uh, and, and let mom or dad or, or maybe grandma or grandpa or whoever see what's going on in fly fishing, see what this is all about. And that way, maybe they get involved. Uh, so many youth fishing programs give so much to young people and they expose them to the outdoors they expose them to conservation they expose them to the diligence and the determination and the skill that something like fly fishing in particular takes and then they send them home and especially if they come from some sort of uh, difficult background or even if they just have a normal you know, middle-class suburban life, they're not going to be able to turn around and turn that into fly fishing opportunities unless they have some sweet arrangement where they live by a pond or a river or on the coast. And so by bringing along a parent and investing in them as well, not saying, you know, hey, I'll teach your kid to fish if you learn to fish too, um, but just showing them, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is all you got to do is just, you know, bring them to this spot, make sure they have this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, this is normal. Yes, they're waist deep. That's okay. That's not crazy. That's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Make sure they don't go this deep. Make sure that they have a waiting belt on. Um, you know, this is, this is kind of what you're paying attention to while they're out in the water. That kind of thing is a great way to not only expose a kid to fishing, get a kid to where they're enjoying the outdoors, but you're creating a pathway so that they can have additional opportunities to go fishing when you can't take them. Um, of course, kids are resourceful. Not only are kids resourceful, but kids have a way of getting what they want. And so even if you're unable to twist mom or dad's arm, the kid probably is going to be able to. And uh, if you if you spark something in them to enjoy fishing, then they will inevitably find ways to get out on the water and get into fish. Next thing that I have to add is have conversations, have a relationship, you know, speak into the young person's life. This is true if it is your child, if it's your nephew, if it's your grandkid, if it's your neighbor, if it's your, your child's friend, you know, this is a opportunity for them to hear from someone of course this isn't the case if it's if it's your own child, but it's an opportunity for them to hear someone who is mom or dad's age that isn't mom or dad. It's an opportunity for them to hear of someone who is grandma and grandpa's age, but it isn't in grandma, isn't grandma or grandpa. And all of us have had that experience where we've heard something a thousand times, maybe from our spouse, and we hear it from somebody else and we're like, oh, that actually makes sense. It's a it's an inherent, you know, character flaw. It certainly is for me. I don't know if it is for you or not, but you might hear it uh, a billion times from someone very, very close to you. And then someone who's a, a couple of, of people removed mentions that. And you're like, you know what? That really makes sense. I'm not sure if if that is your experience. It, it, it's mine. It's again, like I said, it's a character flaw. But I've seen that a, a lot working with teenagers in a various capacities over the last 20 years. I have seen 
where I can say something. And if I'm the same age as their parents, if I'm the same age as their older sibling, um, that then you're going to be able to reinforce what mom or dad are saying, and they're going to take a lot of stock in it. But then when it comes to fishing, you're able to have those conversations that are the kind of things that maybe you have taken for granted. Like, hey, we're going to get up and we're going to get a cup of coffee and we're going to get a breakfast sandwich and we're going to ride to the river and I want to hear about what's going on in school. You know, we're going to get coffee. We're going to, uh, you know, get up really, really early and we're going to head head down to the water. And on the way there, you know, I want you to tell me uh, what you want out of this day. On the way home, you know, we'll stop. We're going to get an enormous cheeseburger. And I want you to tell me three interesting things that you saw that had nothing to do with trout. You know, we're going to go home. We're going to stop. We're going to get ice cream. But I want to hear something that you saw a fish do that you hadn't observed before. Now, notice two things. One, you give particular instructions. <laughs> That's very important, especially for some teenagers. Secondly, food is the social lubricant. Always involve food. It is it's such an important part of fly fishing. It's such an important part of relationship. Real quick, as an aside, I've met people before, and you might be this kind of person that's like, oh, why does everybody have to eat all the time? Well, that's kind of a dumb question. We have to eat because we have to eat. And so if we're going to eat, we might as well eat well, and we might as well eat together because if everyone's going to eat, then let's at least have a good time doing it. Anyway, getting back to uh, the point I was making, uh, something that I learned early on and something that, that Doug did well was he would have conversations. He would ask, you know, deep questions. He would make you think. And so think about the things that that I just mentioned. Uh, and this isn't necessarily something that if you, you just have to do if you are bringing a teenager fishing. This can be your your spouse. This can be a friend. This can be your fishing buddy for the last you know fifty years. They might look at you a little sideways if you just bring something like that on them for the first time. But what were three things that you saw in the water today? Had nothing to do with fishing, but you thought that were cool. You know, what questions like that really get people thinking. And what do they speak to? They speak to that deeper level of appreciation that we have for fly fishing. And what I've found, and casting across is certainly an outlet for this, taking time to think about and articulate those things really makes it pay off. And I think for me, I appreciate a lot more when I deliberately take time to take notes, think about things that I observed. For, for my purposes, it's so that there can be fodder for podcasts, fodder for articles, things that can it, be woven into product reviews and into conversations I have with people in fly fishing. But that kind of stuff is the, the, what is in the background of our fly fishing, being able to appreciate something like a sunset, being able to stop and watch a, a spider weave a web, uh, being able to to comment on the smell of of a river, uh, you know, in early spring when the flowers are just blooming, or in late summer when the the heat is just starting to dissipate and you can kind of feel the coolness of the water. Those are the kind of things that that make fly fishing what it is. Fly fishing, as we've often said, is an inherently contemplative activity. That is why it lends itself so well to to literature. Um, and even what you see here in, in my humble attempts at adding to this voluminous uh, uh, writing and speaking and chronicling of fly fishing. And that's something that you can kind of spark and elicit 
in a young person as you invest in them. It's not just about the how to catch a trout, it's the why to catch a trout. That's really important. It's incredibly important. It's what makes not just the activity persevere, but the ethos around and underneath the activity persevere. So those are two quick ideas that kind of came to mind as I thought about Doug's interaction with Alan, uh, my interactions with him in other capacities, and something that I thought that was worth passing on, just because we all have people that have made an influence in our life that might not be a direct influence, but it's an influence nonetheless. And so those are things that maybe you can think about. On one hand, did somebody do that for me? And how can I, I think it's a cheesy phrase, but how can I pay it forward? And secondly, am I able to do that for somebody? Can I instill in them an appreciation for the outdoors, for fly fishing, for conservation? Even if I don't think I'm a great teacher, how can I spend time with somebody? So going to kind of take a little bit of a left turn, uh, 15 minutes in, usually about 20 minutes of content. And I'm going to read a post from this week on castingacross.com. I was thinking about my interactions with Doug, and I'm finding that more and more. There's there's been a handful of folks from my like my teenage years, my real formative years, that have passed away recently, and I've been doing my darndest to kind of recall encounters, conversations that I had with them, and those times, and then and then later in life. And so this is kind of a um, an amalgam of different conversations. And I use the name Doug uh, in this out of, again, out of respect for this man who's who's now in a much better place. But uh, it certainly is something that I can imagine uh, him saying or doing. And uh, so I hope you appreciate this article called Trout Can't Be Happy. That fish is happy. I looked over at Doug with a kind of puzzled expression that one would make if the definition of a recently heard word was elusive. But I knew what fish were. And I knew what happy was. I just couldn't wrap my mind around how these two terms had any relation to each other, such that Doug would order them together in a sentence the way he did. While I later came to the conclusion that he did not utter this sentence with the sole intention of getting a rise out of me, he did quickly perceive my bewilderment, probably because I didn't talk. And I usually talk. Look at it. That is a happy trout. We had been fishing the small limestone stream for the better part of a day. Fish were caught none so remarkable as to remember. It was the kind of day that comes with a certain frequency of fishing. An average day, but a good day. The late spring conditions proved ideal for any kind of angling a person would want to engage in. Trout took streamers, nymphs, and dry flies. They weren't taking them with reckless abandon. In fact, they manifestly spurned any presentations that were reckless. Reckless presentations are often the result of desperation as much as they are the product of some deficiency in skill. In such instances, defined by the former, the best solution involves a reset. You must stop in order to stop doing what you're doing that you're doing poorly. Otherwise, fishing will be as convoluted as that last sentence. A prime method for stopping is to sit and eat something. Some men bring a flask, some men smoke a pipe. Doug had a sandwich. For all the health risks that some bureaucratic agency prints on the side of alcohol and tobacco, one would assume that they were riskier than an egg salad sandwich that had been in a vest pocket for the past nine hours. This position sidesteps the FDA entirely and is untenable. Yet Doug munched on. It was in this perilous state that I came upon Doug. As he maneuvered his egg salad on white, he watched a fish fin in the current. 
It looked to be a brown trout of about 14 inches. Based upon the experiences of the day so far, and judging by the movement of the trout, it was eating emerging insects. It was flitting back and forth across an area about the square meter size. Its deliberate nosing of the surface gave the impression that it was typing a message on an invisible keyboard, hunting and pecking, using its snout. Yes, that trout is happy. The third time he made his pronouncement, Doug seemed content to just let his piscatorial psychoanalysis hang in the air and drift downstream. He folded the wax paper that he held in his egg salad into a tight little origami opuscule and placed it in a vest pocket. He picked up his rod. Smiling, he watched the trout for a few more seconds. Then, without making a single cast of the admirably sized specimen he had been observing, he set off upstream. Trout can't be happy, but fishermen can be. It doesn't require breathtaking scenery or spectacular exploits. It can be in stopping. It can be in observations of the glorious minutiae. On that day, especially in that moment, Doug was a happy fisherman. Do you have a story about somebody that made an impact on you, even if you never fished with them? Let me know. Matthew at Casting Across. It's a few weeks away from sharing things on their Fly Fishing Accusations podcast, but it's great to have a couple things in the hopper to anticipate sharing when that podcast does roll around. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called Hot Cold Weather Deals, and completely factual, 95 plus degree day, laying in bed, incredibly hot. I am on a, I think I was on Cabela's and a handful of other websites looking at cold weather duck hunting jackets because now they're starting to be on sale. And there's another couple reasons why I think it is worthwhile. If you have a need, not because you need to be a compulsive shopper or anything like that. If you have a need, now is the time to start thinking about your cold weather hunting, fishing, outdoors gear. There's, again, like I said, a number of reasons I share those in that article called Hot Cold Weather Deals. Wednesday's article was the article I just read, Trout Can't Be Happy. You could re-listen to it. You could rewind five minutes and just start from scratch and hear me say it. Or you can go read it for yourself on castingacross.com. This week's recommendation on casting across is bug spray. Now, here's the thing. I actually detest bug spray. You know what I detest? Ticks. Even more than bug spray. I had Lyme disease a number of years ago. And if you listen to the podcast long enough, I have recommended a particular type of bug spray numerous times. And true story, a halfway, like maybe five, ten seconds ago, I'm looking at my my little bars. It's recording my, my voice. I paused to go ahead and order said bug spray. You might have just heard the email come through from Amazon saying that I ordered this stuff. My favorite bug spray to keep ticks off is Repel brand Lemon Eucalyptus Natural Mosquito Repellent, four ounce pump spray. Now, this stuff, it smells like eucalyptus. It's incredibly strong, but I have had great success using it. So here's the deal. It's strong. It will irritate your skin if you have sensitive skin, but I actually only apply it to my boots and to my hat. And as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I like to wear long sleeves and long pants in the summertime to keep the bugs off of me and to keep the sun off me. And the more clothing you wear, the less bug spray and sunscreen you need to apply. And as I mentioned before, I detest both of these things. But 
I am very content to spray the Repel Lemon Eucalyptus uh, spray. It's DEET-free uh, all over me if I need to, but usually I'm, I'm okay with just my shoes and my hat. And this stuff, because there's no DEET in it, it's not going to eat away at your gear. Uh, if, you, if I lost you, well, if I lost you, then you're not hearing this, but if you, if you hear anything from this podcast that, that you is very practical, not that the other things weren't, don't use DEET with your fly fishing gear. Don't use DEET with your hunting or outdoor or, or exercise gear. Uh, DEET will deteriorate plastics. And what's plastic? Well, virtually everything in fly fishing. Uh, your fly line, your waders, your waterproof jacket. No bueno if you get DEET on them. So this stuff from Repel, it's not going to cause those problems. It is strong, so I try not to apply it to my skin as if I can avoid it. But if I have it all over my hat and all over my feet or my shoes, then I'm usually okay. And I've actually had times where I've been in the exact same place as some of my friends who had used just whatever bug spray. And I and my children have escaped tick-free. It's not 100%, but it's the best stuff that I've found. Uh, there's been some other products I've used. There's stuff you use to treat your clothes with. It's even more heavy duty. I like this because it's easy. You can apply it and it, it'll stay on your hat for a long time. It, the, the smell is not unpleasant, but it, it definitely sticks around. So um, I like it for, for spraying on and reapplying. And uh, if it does get on you, it's not going to be super damaging like some of the other uh, chemicals out there that are deep free. But I will put a link to just the Amazon page at... Uh, the bottom of the show notes for this podcast page on castingacross.com. Right now, a bottle of, um, I think it's uh, about four ounces, is less than $5. And that's a, you know, I usually buy two, have one in my car, and have one uh, just uh, in the garage. That way, I'm always good to go and uh, for myself and for my kids. Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Oh, that's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.